This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. And if you're going to stay in with us, let me invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis 44. Genesis 44. It's on page 35 of the Bibles that are provided on the side shelves there. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to grab one of those and uh, follow along. You'll find it on page 35. Um, And I hope you'll, you'll have an open copy of God's Word as we go through it together. And before we do that, let's go to Him in prayer together. Lord, we, we just pray that you would come now and speak to us through your word. Lord, we pray that you would teach us, that you would teach me how to love the way that Christ loves. Teach us the power of the gospel to save and then to so shape a life of love that there is deep joy in the midst of sacrificial serving. Lord, I feel very inadequate before this passage for that reason. So we pray that you would be our teacher and guide us and help us expose selfishness in our hearts, in my heart. Lead us to the fountain of grace that you have for us in Christ, that we may live lives that look like him, that look like you, that others may see, that others may love and know the love that we know. So we pray that you would come and and work now. Do what only you can do in this time. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I have several friends who have said that they're not good test takers. I would include myself in that group. It's more of an excuse for me. I'm I'm also not a good studier. Well, anyway. But I think that's a legitimate thing, that you could, you could come to a, a test and just kind of panic. You know, you know the information. These guys that I'm thinking of are very intelligent, uh, smart. They have, they have a lot of common sense. But when you put that Scantron in front of them and a pencil and a clock, it all just goes to scrambled eggs, right? We, we panic, okay? Not good test takers. But but taking a test doesn't define you. There, there's so much more about a person than, than how they did on that SAT score, right? And I'm saying that to help myself, my own self-esteem. For example, the other side of the coin would be that you could take a test and have all the good grades and have the book smarts and know how to execute on an exam. But in real life, when you get into a job in the work environment, you just, it's just zero, useless, no common sense, bad employee, all the things. So, so then just put it in spiritual terms. Uh, in, in my, in, in I, 
It might be that you could get a question right on an exam about our responsibility, say, to love others or how impactful the gospel should be in a person's life. But the life that we live is quite different than that answer that we bubbled in on the Scantron. Often those discrepancies are revealed through tests, not on paper, but in life. So, for example, if the exam question were, do you exist to love God and love others or to pursue your own happiness? We would kind of roll our eyes and say, of course, it's A. I exist to love God and love others. But is that really what we believe? We usually find out when life turns out differently than we had planned. When, when something happens that tests our stated answer or even our stated theology. Paul Miller observes that in America, where we have incredible abundance, we are becoming increasingly cranky. Our touchiness is fed by an outlook on life that enshrines self. When feeling happy is the goal, we always end up testy because life conspires against us. If our goal is feeling happy, my own pursuit of happiness, my own definition of happiness, and you mess that up with your problems or, or whatever it is, I'm going to be upset. Stephen March argues that the more you try to be happy, the less happy you are. And we just need to know that we are swimming in this. It is literally the American dream, right? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of but life conspires against us. Here's one way to know that we might get there. Miller gives five bad moves that your heart can make when something bad happens, when something unfair happens, when the thing that you had planned works out differently than reality. Five bad heart moves. Number one, self-pity. We nourish an internal victimhood. I feel sorry for myself and maybe do that long-term. Number two, bitterness, which is kind of a simmering demand for God to make my world just. Number three, cynicism and mocking. We restore balance by mocking the other person and maybe even God. Number four, gossip and slander. So I create a community of empathizers who see my pain and would help tear down maybe those that caused it. And then number five, emotional revenge. I withdraw my heart to punish the other person. Silent treatment. I'm gonna leave physically or emotionally from the relationship to punish you. That's the gap I think often I see just honestly in my own life between my stated goal, what my theology says and what actually can happen. So the first thing we ought to do when we realize that discrepancy is to repent, to acknowledge there is a gap between what I say love is, what I say my goal for life is, and what I actually do. To realize then that my lack of joy often is rooted mainly in me. I'm demanding a kind of life, a certain kind of life from God. And when I don't get it, I am unhappy. I am always upset. So I need to repent and acknowledge, actually, I'm not God. 
And my goal is my own happiness, not God and his glory and the good of others. And so when I live for myself, I'm constantly upset because, well, people mess up my plan. But we are called to something different, aren't we, beloved? We're called to live a life of love. Love that we've been shown in Christ. And when we live that love, that, that kind of life, no one can steal that away. The love that you've been shown in Christ and a life committed to loving others is like that. And that kind of life reaps real, lasting joy. Indestructible, unassailable joy. And Jesus desires that we have joy as his disciples and that our joy will be made full. We said that last week in John 15, 11. And right after he says that, that your joy will be made full, in verse 12 he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. He died for us. And that's what we're called to. In our passage this morning, we're gonna see Joseph and by extension the Lord test the sons of Jacob. Are they any different than they were when they threw him into the pit? Have they changed? Do they understand now what love is or not and what love requires? That's the first part of this passage. If you're taking notes, here's the the outline up front. Scene one, we're gonna see the test in verses one to 13. And then in scene two, we're gonna see the brother's response to that test led by their new spokesman, Judah. That's scene two, the stand, Judah's stand in particular. That's the title of the sermon, verses 14 to 34. And there is going to be a picture there of real life love on display, Christ-like love on display. And so I pray that we would not only see that, but see hope for change in us, that God would take us from where we are to, to, to a place of loving more like Christ as we send our roots down deeper into his love for us. So may the Lord just teach us this morning what we really believe. Teach me what I really believe and where I need to grow, and where true joy is found. Let's look together at scene one, the test. If you're joining us kind of for the first time, we've been walking through the book of Genesis since January of last year. Praise the Lord. Thank you for your patience. Our focus this fall is on the last section of Genesis, the life of Joseph and his brothers. Joseph was his father's favorite. He was envied by his brothers. His father gave him a special robe. God gave him special dreams about his brothers and family bowing down to him in submission. His brothers hated him. They envied him and they conspired to kill him. They ended up throwing him into a pit, which was just this empty water well. And, and then at Judah's suggestion, he's a main player now in our, in our passage in the book of Genesis, they sold him into slavery. And so God exalted Joseph. He goes into slavery and then he's exalted to the second in command only to Pharaoh in Egypt. And God uses him to save the the, the land from famine. That famine brings his brothers to him, brings his brothers to Egypt to buy food. So they stand before him. They don't recognize him. He recognizes them immediately. And then he's been testing them to see if they really were the same old brothers that did such evil to him or if they have now changed. And so if you remember, he took one of the brothers, Simeon, captive and sent the rest back to go get Benjamin, the youngest, 
to bring back to him. He said to prove that they weren't spies. Eventually, after a period of time, Jacob agrees to send Benjamin to Egypt so that they could buy more food. Chapter 43 is that account of Joseph surprisingly receiving them and then welcoming the brothers into his own home for a meal. It seems like reconciliation is near. That's kind of where we are in the, in the book. They ate and drank a lot into the night. But there was one more test that Joseph has in store and that's what we're gonna look at together this morning and it begins in chapter 44, verse one. Look with me there. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. So the next morning, there was this kind of party celebration. They've been eating and drinking into the night. You'd expect them now to be bleary-eyed, slow moving, essentially hungover. Joseph wakes them up. You get the sense it's early and sends them off. And I just think that note right there in verse three, with their donkeys, is, 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 is kind of funny. It's a little bit of a callback to those fears they had in chapter 43, if you remember, when Joseph was gonna seize them and steal their donkeys. Chapter 43, verse 18. Joseph did not need these donkeys. He, he is the most you know, the richest person in the land. Just a reminder, often our fears are, tend to be irrational, never come to pass. Moses just subtly makes that point. Joseph is about to test his brothers now. And in this test, he is going to basically recreate the same scenario that landed him in the pit in chapter 37. But only now with Benjamin. So he was the youngest and his father's favorite. Benjamin is the youngest and his father's favorite. They're both sons of Rachel. He was sold out by his brothers for 30 shekels of silver. Now he puts a silver cup into Benjamin's sack along with the money that they had brought for the grain. Money is always a good tester, isn't it, for our hearts? Then we read there in verse four. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. Remember, Joseph was a dreamer. And now he puts this diviner's cup into Benjamin's sack, almost potentially creating a scenario where Benjamin maybe is trying to divine some special rule over his brothers. I don't think Joseph actually practiced divination. I think this is kind of part of the ruse that makes the thing seem uh, real. This kind of divination would be practiced with, with putting different liquids into this cup, like oil and water. You know, those don't mix. So you put these liquids in and they make some kind of pattern as the oil kind of rises to the top and, and the person who is the diviner is looking into the cup and discerning, you know, the future, discerning these decisions that are before them. And, and so that, that's, that's what kind of is going on with this uh, divination. We know earlier from Genesis that Joseph receives his revelation from God. God is the one who speaks to Joseph. God gives him this information alone. But the brothers don't know that. And they're about to have a very rude awakening. So 
Pick it up in verse six. When he overtook them, this is the steward going after them. He overtook them. He spoke to them these words. They said to him, why does my Lord speak such a word as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. That's a big claim. Now, as a, as a reader of Genesis, we know the brothers are innocent and they're responding like you would expect an innocent person to respond. They're almost indignant at this accusation. Hey, you sent us back with money before. We brought the money back. Is that the way a thief operates? We bring money back to you? Come on. And they make this rash vow that if you find the cup, you can kill us. Kill the guy that you find it in. And we'll be your slaves. I would encourage you not to make rash vows because they have been set up and they don't know it. But the steward, I think, mercifully softens their suggestion. There in verse 10, he said, let it be as you say, he who is found with it shall be my servant and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground and each man opening his sack. So here's the test. This is gonna set up the reenactment of the sin that they committed against Joseph. Everyone else is gonna get to go, th- go free except the one where they find the cup. Just the one brother is gonna be the slave. Now, I don't, I don't know all that's going on in Joseph's heart and mind with this test. I think part of it is, is likely a protection of Benjamin, him being really concerned about his, his brother that he loves and what the brothers might do to him. I think the other part of it is, is a desire to reveal the sin of the brothers and for them to, to, to understand what they had done. And these are both things that love does. Love protects, love challenges, love disciplines, those sorts of things. So the brothers are, are, are taking this in and they're thinking, well, this is all, you know, kind of hypothetical, but I guess so. Let's, let's just bring down our sacks. I mean, they, we didn't steal anything. So they open their sacks, they lower them to be searched. You kind of sense this confident air of maybe annoyance about them. We're ready, looking at our watch, we're ready to be back. And the steward searches one by one, notice from the eldest to the youngest. Maybe he remembers that from the dinner that they had with Joseph. Listen to the way Kent Hughes illustrates this, the way it might've happened. He says, Reuben's bag was opened first and the steward found nothing. Reuben drew himself up in glowering indignation, indignation and crossed his arms. The ex-con Simeon's bag was opened next with the same results and Levi's, and then Judas. Take that, Mr. Steward. Then follow the sons of concubinage, Dan and Nephtali, and Gad and Asher. Again, no silver cup. All eight stood frowning righteously. Next, Isaacar and Zebulun passed the test. Likely the brothers had begun to smile and murmur about the steward, hardly paying attention to Benjamin's bag check. But in, horrify, in a horrifying moment, the steward lifted the gleaming object out of the grain and held the silver cup triumphantly as it flashed in the morning sun. You see it happened there in verse 12. And he searched beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, which I think is this dramatic way of doing it. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. They had been so confident. They were on top of the world. They had the grain, they had the money in hand. They had Benjamin and Simeon. 
And now the unthinkable happens. And I I just want to invite you to put yourself there. I know you've probably been there where you thought life was going one way and then immediately there's a U-turn and it's going the other way. The rug is completely pulled out from under you. And it's a test. Their love for their brother and for their father is going to be tested. They've checked all the boxes, but now the rubber is going to meet the road. Have they really been changed? You know, this isn't the first test that we've seen in the book of Genesis. If you remember back in chapter 22, that chapter begins with these words, God tested Abraham. And that test was also a crisis of faith involving the love of a son, Isaac, sacrificial love. And we saw through that test, Abraham showed that he, he loves the Lord, he trusts the Lord, and God provided a substitute. So it's as if we should almost be anticipating that as we continue through the story. And there's a clue, I think, in verse 13 that we don't want to miss about the way the story's going to go. Verse 13, and they, that's important, they tore their clothes and every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. Before, if you remember, when Joseph was reported, reported dead, it was only Jacob that tore his clothes in mourning. Now all the brothers do. They all are in mourning. They all go back to Egypt to face the charges together. And that takes us to the second scene. So scene two, the stand, the stand. And we should just acknowledge, I wanna point out that we're in the middle of some of the most important chapters in the book of Genesis Uh, Chapters 44 and 45 are the the climax of this entire section. And I'm gonna put up a slide that's gonna show the way that these chapters are shaped, okay? And I just want you to watch this magic, okay? So just, this is the way chapters 37 to 50 are shaped. And I just want you to know much of the Bible is shaped this way. All of Genesis is shaped this way as as an intentional way for us to to see the main point of what Moses is trying to get at. Notice the way that it kind of comes together in this shape. You have a copy of this list in your bulletin if you can't read that. So I did, there's an insert there in your bulletin if you want to kind of examine the the relationships more. It's shaped like, like half of the letter X. And in Greek, that letter is the letter chi. That's where we get that term chiasm. And so Moses is crafting this story the whole book of Genesis is, is this way. Uh, we see it in creation with Noah, the uh, Abrahamic portions, Jacob's life, and now with Joseph. And I just want you to, to acknowledge that and just say, praise the Lord for the Bible. It is amazing, more amazing than we realize. And we could spend our lives plumbing the depths of all that's there. But if you notice, what's in the middle of that X are chapters 44 and 45, the chapter's where we are now. Moses is, is crafting all this, this section in, in a way to draw attention to what we are about to see. We're about to see a picture of Christ-like, selfless, sacrificial love. Okay, we're gonna see that in, in this chapter right here, chapter 44. And then it's gonna be coupled with, and we're not gonna get there today, so a little bit of a cliffhanger. It's gonna be coupled with reconciliation. Chapter 45, the Lord of all the land is gonna forgive those that have sinned against him, okay? That's what's gonna happen in the next chapter. And, and, and just, just notice each section before and after mirror each other. That's where you get that little like apostrophe. That's like a prime. So, so F prime matches F. And they all are, are situated in a way that, that, that mirrors and points to that central theme 
of love. This section in Genesis contains the longest speech in Genesis uh, by, by Judah. And, and really it is one of the most Christ-like pictures of love that we're gonna find in all of the Old Testament. So let's look at it together, just kind of with that as a, as a primer to know what we're looking at. Look at verse 14. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? So it seems like Joseph hasn't left his house yet to go out when his brothers arrive and they come and again bow before him. This is the third time that his dream in chapter 37 has been confirmed. And here it has this picture of desperation falling down before him and he confronts them. And he uses this this kind of ability to, to do divination as a threat, which again, I think that's all it is. And Joseph again he, or I'm sorry, Judah is gonna serve as the spokesperson for the, the brothers. And so he speaks up there in verse 16. And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. I suspect at this point, the the brothers have had some interaction with Benjamin and talked with him some, maybe on the way, got his side of the story. I mean, that's what I would do. Like, dude, what are you, what are you thinking? No, no, I didn't steal it. So he's, they probably know what's happened, but they don't seem to be blaming him. They seem to be with him. And so I don't think what Judah is confessing here in verse 16 is stealing the cup when he says, God has found out the, cup, the, the guilt of your servants. I think he's confessing their guilt and their actions that they committed against Joseph. Even though they are innocent of this charge, they are not innocent. Just hypothetically, let's say parents, you accidentally disciplined the wrong child. That maybe have happened in my family, I can't remember, but you disciplined the wrong child for, for an offense and said something like, well, you may not have done this, but you've done a lot of other things and you've gotten away with them. So now things are good. That's kind of the the feel. They have this guilt, don't they? Look Look back at chapter 42, verse 21. Here again, they're they're realizing bad things are happening. Notice what they conclude, 42, 21. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he had begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. I think that's what Judah is confessing. Listen to the the, the question, his question to Joseph again. How can we clear ourselves? All the evidence is stacked against them. They have nothing to say. And they know deep down that they're guilty. And here's the reality. The only one that can help them is the one they've sinned against. The only one that can truly help them is the one that they've betrayed. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is something for you to especially think about and to ponder. The Bible teaches that we are all like Judah and the brothers, guilty before God. 
You might compare yourself to others and say, well, I'm not guilty of that thing that they've done, but ultimately the banner over your account before God is guilty because you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And our sin isn't hidden. They thought that their sin was hidden here, but it's being exposed. Friends, your sin will always be before God and it will be exposed. We've all rebelled and we know it deep down. And so that question should ring in your ears. It should burn in your soul. How can I be cleared of my guilt? Joseph is gonna give them a way. He's gonna give them an out, but it's not God's way. Look at what he offers them. Uh, We're back in chapter 44, verse 17. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Keep all of you as slaves. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. We can, we can walk free, guys, and leave Benjamin behind right now. And you could even say, if someone asked you, why would you do that? You could say legitimately, what choice do we have? What are we gonna say to a man like this? Everyone's gonna understand, probably even Jacob's gonna understand. What are you gonna do? This is guy, what he says goes. This is the test. What's it gonna reveal? And so, so listen, follow along as we read one of the most important sections in this, in this book, beginning in verse 18. Then Judah went up to him and said, oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ear and let not your anger burn against your servant for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant saying, have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead and he alone is left of his mother's children and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. I think he's just kind of reminding Joseph, hey, these are kind of the rules you set. Verse 24, when we went back to your servant, my father, We told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food. We said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons, two sons. One left me and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs to evil to Sheol, in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. So this is not just a test to see if Judah loves his brother. It's to see if he loves his father. The father that counts him as a lesser son. Judah repeats Jacob's own words as fact. 
when he says, Jacob said, my wife bore me two sons. So he speaks like he only had one wife, which by the way, is the way it should be. Okay, we'll go into that. We can go into that more if you have questions, but Jacob has more than one wife. He speaks like he only has one wife, Rachel, that's his favorite. He, when he does that, he totally discounts Judah's mother. He acts like Leah does not exist. Imagine hearing that as a son. And then he speaks as only if he has two sons, discounting all the others, including Judah. And so I think it's good for you, good for me to put yourself here in his place and to understand that he loves his father. Judah loves him. It's obvious in this passage. And he likely wants his father to love him back. He wants his father's approval for him to be proud of him. But that's not what he gets. He's faced here with the unfairness, the unevenness, the brokenness of life. The cold reality is that Jacob's favoritism will never really go away. It just kind of is the way that it is. It's going to always be. And his mother, Judah's mother, is always going to be second place in his father's eyes. And he is never going to have the same kind of affection that Jacob shares for his other sons. And that is a hard pill to swallow. Not just to swallow, not just to accept, but then to turn around and to love that person anyway. To die to yourself and love when you get nothing in return. Now we're getting somewhere. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 46, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. The world. Isn't that the way the world works? Is I love, I respect, I'll serve, I'll take care of those who do that for me. We're different. We're called to something different. Judah is not the same man we saw in chapter 37 when he sought to profit from Joseph's enslavement. That was his idea. He was angry. He was indifferent to Joseph and how that loss would affect his father. He couldn't, he, he couldn't have cared less. He was jealous. He was envious, full of himself, full of lust. His desires ruled him. He, he slept with a prostitute, Tamar, also his daughter-in-law, and, and then hypocritically called for her death when others found out. Now it's as if his life is completely turned around. Almost like each transgression is matched with an act of love. It's all reversed. Now he's motivated by a selfless love for his father. He gets nothing in return. He's promised himself to be a pledge for Benjamin. Whereas before he was willing to give a pledge to pay for, for this sexual act. Now he's gonna make good on his promise. Look at what happens there in verse 32. Is what We'll finish the section. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find 
my father. Friends, this is glorious. This is beautiful. He begs for the opportunity to be a substitute sacrifice for Benjamin's life. First instance of kind of human substitution that we find in scripture. He begs to be taken instead of, that's where we get that substitution language, instead of Benjamin, the one who's right now standing guilty. He loves his father with a love that is, can be described as one way right now. He refers to his father 14 times in this speech. He begins the speech, verse 19, talking about his father. He ends it in verse 34, talking about his father. And 14 times throughout, father, father, father. Love for his father that is unconditional. It's not expecting anything from it. He delegitimizes himself as a son. He's willing to lose everything. This is the future king. Not because he's the strongest, not because he has the best ideas, because he understands love. He understands God's love. And from his line is gonna come the one who would truly and finally show us what love is. In Revelation 5, the angels can find no one worthy to open the scrolls, to break the seals in heaven. No one on earth, no one in heaven is found. And John, the author of Revelation, begins to weep. But then we read in Revelation 5, 5, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Only Jesus is worthy. Only Jesus has conquered by giving himself as a ransom for the undeserving, by loving those that did not love him and dying to pay the penalty for their sins. Jesus loved us when we were his enemies, while we were yet sinners. He died for us. He paid the price for our sins. He offers us forgiveness and grace for sinners. He offers us reconciliation. So stay tuned for chapter 45. Friend, if you're not a Christian, today is the day of salvation. Do you understand the grace of God on offer to you right now, calling you to receive it, to turn from your sin and put your trust in Jesus, to turn from seeking your own glory, submit your life to the true king and find true life and true joy. I would love to talk to you sincerely about that. If you have questions, Anyone who's sitting next to you would also like to talk to you about that. I'll be back at the back door after the service. If you have questions about what it means to be a Christian, please come talk to me. I'd love to hear more, for you to hear more about what it means to know Jesus Christ. This is love. And if you're here and you're a Christian, we need to understand this is our calling, our path to love like this, okay? To love like Jesus, Jesus in John 13 says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And I don't want you, I, sometimes I interpret that and I think generically, I think of love generically, 
But, but the way that we get past that is, is that phrase, just as I have loved you. That's how we're to love one another. That points to sacrifice. That points to death. That points to God's hesed, steadfast love to those who don't deserve it. The context of John 13 is Jesus washing the disciples' feet, including Judas. That's the love that we're talking about. That's the love that sets us apart from the world. That particular, peculiar love. Can you see how a marriage that has its foundations on that love would be different? I wonder if there's times in your marriage where you feel like you're doing all the loving. It's kind of one way. You're, you're, you're doing, you're, it's all coming from you. It feels one way. And then sometimes in our minds, we might say, well, that's a reason to call time out or maybe a reason to, to, to leave or pull out the trump card that says, really, I'm just not happy and I wanna be happy. And so I'm out. Marriage is a commitment to love your spouse. Husbands love as Christ loved the church, wives submitting to and respecting our husbands till death do you part. What other times do you see love, the temptation to draw back when that love is not reciprocated, when there's nothing for you in it, when it's not your particular love language? Remember Judah. Remember Jesus. That's true love. That's where true joy is actually found. We are, we are so quick, aren't we, to terminate relationships when we don't get back what we think we should. In the church, in our families. Do, do we see the difficult people in our lives as interruptions and interferences on our way to the promised land of happiness, my own personal happiness, which often Apart from scripture, we define ourselves. Do we only love those that deserve our love? Friends, aren't you glad that's not the gospel? Aren't you glad that's not what we've gathered here today to celebrate is that God picked some people that really deserve it. And he decided to love them. That's not who this crowd is. This is a bunch of people who know we don't deserve it. And God has shown love anyway in Christ. I'm not saying this is easy. Don't see me as a guy who's telling you what I've, I've been doing my whole life and I have it figured out. No, it's not. I'm not doing great at this. I need you to encourage me. I need the scriptures. I need the gospel to help me get from the answers in my head to reality in my heart out into the life that I live with others. We all need that. That's called sanctification. That takes time. But that's where we're headed. We're walking this way together as a group that, that wants to love like this. Even when it's like this one-way love. Even when it's love that doesn't seem reciprocated like we think it ought to be. To grow and look more like Jesus. Peter said in 1 Peter 2, For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He left us an example to follow him in suffering through his love. He's the suffering servant. So don't forget, Judah knows what that's like too. He knows what it's like to lose a son. He's lost two sons. Through suffering, God is teaching Judah 
to love, to look outside of himself. Instead of trying to find a way of, of, of escape, instead of seeing the hard parts of life as random annoyances on our journey to our own happiness, we should pause and just ask, how is God teaching me to love through this thing that's happening? How is he teaching me about himself, about myself? How am I reflecting the love of Christ in the way that I love others? How do I, and I think this is the natural question, need to repent, readjust my heart's goals for my life. So instead of those five wrong heart moves that I mentioned at the beginning, instead of responding to to disappointment or injustice or unfairness with self-pity, Lord, help us to understand how the gospel empowers us to rest our fears and pain on God's shoulders, to know that he is aware of our situation and he cares for us. He's not caught off guard. And instead of giving in to to bitterness, seeking by God's help to joyfully, willingly submit to his will, to his plan, instead of maybe my plan, instead of responding with cynicism and mocking, I can seek to die to myself and repent of my desire to be my own God. Instead of gossip and slander, I can seek to edify those around me in the situation to build up the whole, the whole family, the whole church, the whole person. And instead of exacting emotional revenge and punishing people around me, I can actually engage them and go out of my way to love them, to be the first person who speaks to them. You know, when it's icy between two people, you know, when it's icy, there's there's a decision you have to make. Am I going to be the first person or are they going to be the first? Be the first person to go and engage. Love, even when it's not returned. No one can steal that away. No one can take away the joy that comes from, from, from living a life like that. And that's what Judah is picturing here. And it is a glimpse, a preview of love incarnate. Jesus Christ. It begins with those ancient words penned in around AD 150. How the one love of God through exceeding regard for men did not regard us with hatred nor thrust us away nor remember our iniquity against us but showed great long suffering and bore with us. He himself took on him the burden of our iniquities He gave his own son as a ransom for us, the holy one for transgressors, the blameless one for the wicked, the righteous one for the unrighteous, the incorruptible one for the corruptible, the immortal one for them that are mortal. For what other thing was capable of covering our sins than his righteousness? By what other one was it possible that we, the wicked and ungodly, could be justified than by the only son of God? Oh, sweet exchange. Oh, unsearchable operation. Oh, benefits surpassing all expectation that the wickedness of many should be hid in a single righteous one and that the righteous one should justify many transgressors. This is love, beloved. And for this, you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Let's pray.
Lord, we confess that in so many ways we feel like we're just at the very beginning and understanding, I feel this way, how to really put this into application, how to really love when it's not deserved. So we just pray that you would help us wherever we are, just take us to another step of understanding, another step of obedience, another step of harvesting the joy that is, when we, that is there when we die to self and live to you. It's just counter all of our flesh. It's counter all of our culture. But Lord, we know it's your way. And we know that you've purchased the ability for us to walk in it. And so we pray that you would remind us of that and help our church to be growing in our love, Christ-like love. We would love the way that we've been loved. And we pray that others would see that and be drawn to you. They would know that we're your disciples. Lord, I know there's many, there are many in our congregation sitting here right now who are in the midst, in the weeds of a difficult marriage, difficult family situation, dealing with a difficult um, child. And they're just loving and loving and loving. Lord, we pray that you would continue to strengthen them and that that love, Lord, would have its effect. That those in that family, those in that neighborhood and community and our church would be drawn to Christ. Lord, we look forward to seeing you glorified in all these things. Would you bring them to pass? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.